0: Welcome to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 257, and today we are talking about books being released on April 28th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia Elsie Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello! Hello! Hello, listeners! Hello, everyone out there! It's actually, let's see, we're recording this, it's Friday night, it is like... A little after 10 here in Maine, which means I always have to like do like the three counts backwards to figure out what time it is where you are in California. Like I can't just figure it out on my own.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a little after 7.15 or so. Yeah. Here in California. Still light out where I am. That's so strange. It is nice how it stays light longer here.
0: It's pretty great. I can see all the little critters in the yard for longer. And yeah, so we're recording a show. The world continues. Book world continues. The books that we are going to talk about today are coming out as far as we know. Uh, on April 28th, things do change rather quickly. I know like I noticed I did like a newsletter a few weeks ago way in advance and I researched all the titles like on that Friday and by Tuesday when it hit, several of them had been moved. Wow. We're trying. We're, I'm trying to keep it current, trying to keep on top of what's changing. But I read something like like just one of the major publishers has already moved like 800 titles or something. So Holy cow. Things are getting moved around. But as long as there are books. Next week is the first Tuesday of the month, which means a ton of books. The first Tuesdays are always the big, big, big days. And as far as I can tell, a lot of them are still coming out on that day. So... That'll be exciting too. Before we get started talking about our books, two things. One, I want to say hello to Nancy in Massachusetts, Nancy and her dog Joey. Uh, Nancy has reached out to me a couple of times over the years. Uh, She's a listener in Massachusetts and very nice. I think the last time we talked, it was about David Sedaris, and she reached out recently to say hello. And so I'm saying hello back to her uh, on the air. And thank you for
2: listening. And the other thing I was going to tell you is it's time for a month. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Reina in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny, they fall in love. Are you ready,
0: Patricia? Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to talk about my book, but like, are you ready to sit there and not say
1: anything? I don't know. No, I'm I'm, I'm totally ready to hit my mute button right now. Okay. All right. All right. So my first pick today is
0: Take Me Apart by Sarah Slager. And it is a literary mystery, almost mystery. It's one of those books where the mystery is like secondary to everything else that is going on in the book. I love, which is kind of like, I guess what describes literary mystery, but I love a literary mystery. This one is really, really well done. Before I tell you about it, I want to give you a heads up that there is discussion of suicide. So this is about a young woman named Kate. Aitken. She was a journalist in New York City. And at the beginning of the book, we know that there has been some kind of problem with her boss. There was like a scandal that was covered in the news. She has since had a really hard time. She's she's left New York City. She's had a really hard time dealing with the fallout. She's going through a lot of rough stuff right now, and we just get, like, little tiny bits and pieces of of what might have happened in New York City uh, while she is now out in California. She takes a job in California. Her aunt lives in a little town and sort of calls in a favor and gets Kate this job working as an archivist. And she's going to be sorting through the house of a famous photographer. The woman's name was Miranda Brand. And decades before, uh, she died by suicide at this home where Kate is going to be going, like, basically at the height of her fame. And she had a son and husband who lived there at the time. Her son, Theo, was, like, 13 at the time. Um, And he's the one who has now hired Kate to come in and go through his mother's stuff. He's not super friendly. And she didn't really do a lot of research about him There's not much to know about him. They've never, like, really discussed his mother. He's never discussed his mother in interviews. There have been books written about her, but they have not participated. His family never participated in um, these stories. So she gets there, and he's kind of gruff and unfriendly and a little creepy almost. Um, But he is there with his two children. He has just recently been divorced, and now he's staying at the house with his two kids. And she thinks she's going in to, like, sort some papers and instead, it's like everything that his mother Miranda had was basically thrown into this one room and left untouched for like the last several years. And so there's just everything like and she kept everything like receipts and food wrappers and just all this stuff. And the deal that Kate struck with Theo was part of it was that she would also get like a very small percentage of any art that was sold like when she finds if she found any uh, photographs um, she would get a very small percentage of those sales and she was thinking like oh you know you know all these prints have already been sold and they're gone and you know this is just what's in her house but it turns out that there's actually like a ton of photographs still so she's very happy about that uh, so she goes about doing her work not really seeing Theo but she lives with her aunt and her uncle and they gossip about the family, Uh, When Kate's at home, um, she has signed a non-disclosure agreement, so she can't tell them anything about what she sees. But they are telling her, like, oh, there were these rumors that maybe she didn't die by suicide and someone else killed her. And one of the suspects was her son, Theo, like, even though he was only 13 at the time. And now she's like, oh, man, I really should have. I really should have researched this before I went to work there. Um, but she just has so much else going on in her world. You know, she's she's traumatized by what happened to her in New York, and this was like an escape, so she took it. Uh, so this, the book is told from Kate's perspective, but also it's sort of an epistolary because you get in between each chapter, you get like little bits of letters and articles and transcripts that pertain to Miranda, and you get to learn a little bit more about her through that. And Kate she starts to become obsessed with Miranda's life and learning more about her. And the more she digs and the more she uncovers, the more, you know, she becomes obsessed with finding out the truth behind what happened to her. And it all ties into, you know, Kate's trauma and what happened to her. She makes some really bad choices, but they are not out of character. They are fitting for someone who has gone through what she goes through. And it's sort of like I said, this is a the mystery is kind of secondary because it's really a book about Kate's trauma and the effect that this new job has on her when she hasn't like fully healed or even like faced what was going on in New York. It's really well done. It's really interesting. I will give uh, further warnings for uh, mentions of sexual assault, physical and emotional abuse, and self-harm in this book as well. It's dark, but it's really
1: good. It's take me Apart. By Sarah Slager. So for my first book, I have something wildly different from that book. (laughs) This is Wisdom from a Humble Jellyfish and Other Self-Care Rituals from Nature by Ronnie Shaw. This is a lovely little book with adorable drawings, some basic self-care tips, and tons of fun animal facts. Each chapter focuses on a certain species or a few species in the same class. Something cool, peculiar, and special about that animal or animals, and then what people can learn from it in terms of self-care. The definition of self-care that is used by this book is based on the definition from the OED that self-care is the, quote, practice of taking an active role in protecting one's own well-being and happiness. So many wonderful animals and a few plants are featured jellyfish, mantis shrimp, which are super cool, wombats, avocado trees, octopuses, and more. Also, porcupines. And side note, if you want a little bit of joy, go to the internet and find a video with sound of a porcupine eating and make sure you have your sound on. You're welcome. So back to the book, the animal facts are A+. I love me a good animal fact and a piece of nature trivia. Some of the animal information in this book I already knew, but some of it was totally new to me and I really appreciated that. The self-care slash self-help info in the book is really basic, and if you already read a lot in the self-help genre, you don't necessarily learn anything new. However, this is a really fun, accessible way to get this information and could be an entry point for people interested in the genre. I also think like it would be good for like a young adult interested in the genre as well. For example, there's a section on spiders with some info about the different kinds of webs each spider weaves in order to get the certain kind of prey it wants to get. And the takeaway is that there's not usually one single way to reach your goals. The part on jellyfish I thought was particularly clever. The author talks about how a jellyfish swims and how in order to move forward, it actually has to relax. And then the author talks about how clearly it's important for us to relax and how relaxing can help us move forward. Like I said, it's super cute and it was a lovely read to read at this time. Again, the title is Wisdom from a Humble Jellyfish and Other Self Care Rituals from Nature by Ronnie Shaw. So I have that book. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's so cute.
0: Yeah. But a couple of things. One, I second the porcupine recommendation. There's an amazing video. I can't remember the porcupine's name, but like there's one that's like eating a pumpkin. Yes. The
1: porcupine is Teddy. Teddy, yes. And after that, my wife brought me to this wilderness sanctuary down in L.A. and I got to feed porcupines. (gasps) Well, the other thing I have to say, because I will never not say this, is that
0: wombats have square poops and... That delights me to no end, and I need
1: to mention it like every time someone mentions a wombat. <laughs> oh, and the cube poop is definitely mentioned in the wombat section of this book. Yeah. Okay. Good. So
0: she's covered everything <laughs> because it's just it's just hilarious. And like when people are like tell me something I don't know, like that's usually the fact that I that I bring up. I don't know. It just makes me laugh. So. They
1: also have really hard butts, and in order to defend themselves, they go into like their little. Like holes in the ground, and they stick their butt out because like it can't it can't be hurt. Yeah, uh, it's really weird. That's awesome.
0: Well, I'm <laughs> probably going to read this book like as soon as we're done here. So, okay, now back to like dark and, <laughs> and atmospheric and not about animals. My next pick is The Knockout Queen by Rufy Thorpe, uh, who is just so so good. Uh, She wrote two of my favorite books, uh, The Girls of Corona Del Mar and Dear Fang with Love. And I just love her books. Um, She is an expert at capturing the nuances of situations, whether it's a friendship or mental illness or the relationship between a parent and a child. Just so fantastic. This one is a little different, and I would say probably her darkest novel yet. It is a coming of- age novel set in California. There is a teen named Michael. Uh, he is in high school. He's been traumatized. Uh, when he was very young. His mother killed his father, and she's now in jail. He is not popular at school. He's having a hard time. He's wrestling with his sexuality. He's gay and he doesn't know what to do about that, basically, like he he doesn't know who to turn to, how to talk about it, and because his you know family life is untenable. He lives with his aunt and his cousin, and she lives next door. Her house is located next door to a fabulously wealthy family, a father and a daughter. Bunny is the daughter. She is beautiful, and their family is very, very wealthy, and he you know, sees her by the pool. She seems to be like sunshine, where he is dark. To him, anyway, she presents as being perfect, even though... Uh, she's actually, as she, though she's a, she's a young teen teenage girl. She's six three and is sort of ostracized at school because of that fact. Like the kids think, like she's so tall. It's just you know because kids are just mean about everything, you know. But to Michael, Bunny is perfect, and they strike up a friendship and become best friends uh, and sort of do everything together for a while. And this book is Michael telling the story. Of his friendship with Bunny and that time in their lives, Uh, he's sort of looking back. And it's about, you know, like, the awkwardness of being a teen and also everyone's unknowable self and the side that we don't show to anybody. And also about how gay men and teenage girls fit into the patriarchy uh, and how teens learn to be adults when they don't have anyone to teach them. There is an act of violence that occurs that changes everything between them. And, you know, that's where it gets really dark, but it's such a good book. Like I could have read a hundred more pages of it because, you know, I appreciated it as an awkward teen, (laughs) although is awkward teen like redundant. I feel like everyone feels awkward, but you know, I just, I love her writing and she's so good at character driven novels. So this is The
1: Knockout Queen by Rufy Thorpe. So for my next book, I have another nonfiction, which I just realized I have all nonfiction today. Wow. So, yeah, I know. This book is, the title is Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World by Dr. Vivek Murthy. This book, oh, this book was such a lovely, hard, pertinent read right now. I want to give a content warning for suicide, including details of a particular suicide. The author, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. While he was serving in this position, he found that there was a common thread among the big issues like addiction, violence, anxiety, and depression, and that thread was loneliness. This book is a deep dive into loneliness as something that everyone experiences at some point and also loneliness as a major public health issue. He talks extensively about the shame that can happen around loneliness, how it's something that we don't talk about much or that we feel like it's our fault if we experience it. Or that we alone are the only ones who experience it, especially when we see people posting on social media all these things that they're doing with other people and how that can feed into loneliness as well. So I promise the whole book isn't a complete downer. It has some beautiful, uplifting stories about people who recognize loneliness for what it is and have organized to combat it in their own lives and their own communities, sometimes creating programs that reach further out to other parts of the country. Vivek Murthy also writes about loneliness in various cultures, which I found super fascinating and it resonated very deeply. This book isn't all like, oh, loneliness is a problem and we're all doomed. Um, The author does offer strategies and his findings about how to cure loneliness. This, of course, is a really relevant subject at this time um, when we are all sheltering in place and most of us not seeing our friends, much less our family. Interestingly enough, I went to pick up some masks made by a friend who is very talented at sewing. My wife and I stood at the edge of her garden and we yelled across to her about 10 feet away, had a small visit. She mentioned that sewing masks and thereby doing something to help people has helped her feel less lonely, like friend lonely. She has a husband and there are kids in the house. And this book also talks about how you can be around many people and still feel lonely. I found my friend's comment really interesting because that is one of the big pieces of advice in alleviating loneliness from this book, which is helping others and acts of service. Even if you don't want to help other people, doing something like being a foster home for an animal or a beach cleanup has the same positive results on loneliness. The author definitely talks about isolation, though of course this book was written before we were all sheltering at home. He talks about childhood loneliness and the effects of loneliness and isolation on children as well. This book was so good. Like I mentioned, it was a bit of a hard read right now, but I really, really recommend it when you feel like you have the spell slots to handle reading it. Again, the title is Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World by Vivek Murthy.
0: Okay, I wanted to read that too, but I was like, uh, I don't know if I can read that
1: right now. It was hard, but it also was so good.
0: Yeah, I feel like everyone's situation, there are positives and negatives to whatever situation you are in right now. Like, I am here with my boyfriend in the house, and... It's great, but then sometimes I'm like, when I'm feeling sad, then that sort of affects him, and I'm like, oh, you know, and then I try to remember, like, what it used to be like when I lived in a tiny little attic apartment all by myself, and what that would be like if if I was going through this now, and it's just, I can't decide, you know, like, you just do the best with what you can yeah, exactly. and what you
1: have, but I was like, I don't know if I can read this book right now. Yeah, right now put it put it on the shelf for a a few months down the line (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah we're all doing the best that we can
0: so absolutely my next pick is actually a book that came out last year that I talked about last year and I want to talk about it again because it's coming out in paperback and I feel like it is one of it is like largely unsung it was one of my favorite books of last year and I feel like it deserves more attention. People I know who have read it, they love it, and so I'm here to talk about it again. It is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames, which I will say, I think people might get a little confused by the title. That might have been part of why it didn't get picked up, because it sounded like the Seven Husbands book and also the Seven and a Half Deaths book that came out last year. There was a lot of seven things happening uh, in titles last year. So this is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. And I love it. It's a h- historical novel. It takes place partly in Italy, partly in the United States. It is indeed about Stella Fortuna. It starts, well, Well, when it starts, we find out that Stella Fortuna is an elderly woman who is living in Connecticut. And one of the family members of, one of Stella's family members is telling the story. But I don't want to tell you what's happening in present day until I tell you about what happened in the past. So then it goes back to Italy before World War II and covers Stella's parents uh, who meet her father is just a horrible man he's just a, a bore and he goes off to war and leaves Stella's mother behind she has a baby now things are really tough for her she can't like she doesn't have anybody she can count on you know they're practically starving by the time he gets back from the war, he's just—he's changed, but he wasn't that great to begin with, and he's abusive towards her mother. Uh, eventually, uh, they have another child, so now Stella has a younger sister, and she feels very close and protective of her sister, Tina. And it's kind of like the family dynamic that goes on between her parents and Stella. Stella also has the unfortunate, like, I would call them unfortunate incidents. She has several experiences where she almost dies, which is where the title comes from. She has an unfortunate habit of getting into these strange, strange situations uh, that almost kill her. And so that is where the title comes from. And that affects her a lot in her life. Uh, When Stella is a teenager, you know, and things are starting to look up for her, she's thinking about being an adult someday. Her family immigrates to the United States and end up in Connecticut right before the start of World War II. And now her whole world has been moved and she's in a new country and she's also like wanting independence, but that is not how things are done in Italy. And her parents are not going to let her, you know, sort of spread her wings in this country where they don't know anything about it. And just in general, because she's a young girl and it's the 1940s. So, like I said, the story is told by a family member in present day because Stella lives across the street. From her younger sister, Tina, and if you remember I told you, she and Tina were like BFFs for a long time, but now we find out that despite the fact that they live across the street from one another and Tina still brings Stella food to eat, they have not spoken in several decades. Something has happened that has caused this rift between them, and while Tina obviously still cares about Stella you know, she takes care of her, they haven't spoken, and so we're going to find out, like, what happened. I just, I loved this book. I feel like there are 80 bajillion books pertaining to World War II, and it's hard to find, like, the really great ones. And obviously, this isn't just about World War II, but, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm like, oh, another book that takes place around World War II, you know, pass. But I'm so glad that I picked this one up because this book is a gift. And it's beautifully done. The way she she has the way that Julia Grames uh, has the narration work, and that's why I'm telling you about it again because I loved it. So I'm gonna stop babbling about this book now. Uh, maybe I will tell you about it seven or eight times. I don't know. This is the Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Graham's now in paperback, and now we're going to hear from our next sponsor. Okay,
1: Patricia. My turn. Let me guess. You have a nonfiction pick. <laughs> I have another nonfiction pick. I'm cheating because you already said that. Let's see. My next pick is What is Color? 50 Questions and Answers on the Science of Color by Arielle Ekstut and Joanne Ekstut. I fully realize that this may be a niche topic. (laughs) Fun fact, for many years, I worked in an industry that barely exists anymore. I worked in photo labs. I printed photos from film. I did restorations in Photoshop and so forth and so on. My mom was a photographer, so I was also steeped in photographing weddings and babies all on film. So I found this book, What Is Color? super duper interesting. The things about color, seeing colors, or perceptions of colors is that there are still a lot of unknowns and definitely varying opinions. Most of us, if we look at a red truck, we can identify that the truck is red, but we can't really confirm that what I am seeing and identifying as red is exactly the same as what you are seeing and identifying as red. Like we have general ideas, but it's similar with taste. We can't 100% say that if you and I are eating the same meal, that we are tasting the same thing. As mentioned in the title, this book is laid out by answering 50 questions about color. Each question has three answers, a simple answer, an answer with a bit more information, and then a complex technical answer. So one could get a baseline amount of information by reading through the book and only reading the first answer to each question. Each question also has color diagrams and imagery, and one of my favorite parts is that there are quite a few color-based optical illusions. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with getting books from the library that had all kinds of optical illusions, so this portion of what is color is extra pleasing to me. The first question in the book, of course, is what is color? It starts the answer with another question. Quote, in the fall, do leaves on the trees still change color if there is no one there to see them? It seems like the answer is obvious, but I promise it is not. The authors are a mother-daughter team who are designers and entrepreneurs. They are not scientists, but they realize that people can have entire careers working with color and not understand much about it. The questions answered have a wide range. Some examples are how is color related to light? What is the visible spectrum? What does the retina do? Why does the same color look different depending on the light source? What is color blindness? What is hue? What is black? What are Pantone matching system colors? And so many more. I loved the opportunity to geek out and learn about a very specific topic in a way that was easy to understand. I definitely recommend What is Color? 50 Questions and Answers on the Science of Color by Arielle Extud and Joanne Ekstud. I love books about color.
0: I want all <laughs> the books that you've done today, basically. There were some really great books. There
1: are some really yeah. great books.
0: My new thing is I love like things organized by color. Ooh. Uh, and there's a an Instagrammer, Brittany Wright, who does that. Uh, she has a book out recently called Feast Your Eyes. Um, and she also has puzzles and, like, it's, like, fruit and, like, color schemes and ice cream and stuff like that. And I also just want to mention, because apparently I'm just going to talk about all kinds of books today. There was a book that I absolutely loved that came out many years ago. I think, like, like 15 years ago called Color, A Natural History of the Palette by Victoria Finlay, which is just all about where different colors come from ooh,
1: and dyes and stuff like that. So great. And how purple, like, didn't really – it wasn't a thing. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that because it was my brother was like a, like 13 or 14 before we realized that he couldn't see purple. He did not see the color purple, and yet he can see red and blue, which is very strange to me because that is what makes up purple. But um, yes, to him, purple was not a thing. Uh, it was just gray. Everything was gray. So <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Did you know that George Michael couldn't see red or green,
1: which means like he couldn't oh. see Christmas.
0: Basically, <laughs> that's how yeah. I think of it.
1: Wow. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because this book goes over different kinds of color blindnesses and how red and blue make purple if you're mixing like paint but not mm-hmm. necessarily if you're mixing light and like what's the difference between like paint colors and light co- like it's huh. it's super geeky. Yeah, I love it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, George Michael could also not see wombat poop. True story. So <gasps> No, I don't know. I'm I'm a little I'm a little spacey and tired now. It's it's eleven o'clock and then I'm getting a little wacky. Sorry, everybody. Um, they're like, really? <laughs> this is like normal for you. Uh, so I am going to tell you about my last pick, which unfortunately I have not read. Uh, I am very sorry to say. I started another book that I was really 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 excited about uh, and did not enjoy it at all. So um, I had to pick something else up and ran out of time. But it is. A book that I think everyone will be interested to hear about, it is Little Family by Ishmael Beya. He wrote A Long Way Gone, which was a memoir that sold a zillion copies many years ago. I think it was actually also the first book that they sold in Starbucks, if I'm remembering correctly. I think that's a little fact that I've tucked away in my brain somewhere. This is his second novel. It is about five young people living together in an abandoned aeroplane They are their own little community, they're their own little family, and it's about how they work together to keep their little community going, but inevitably, the outside world is going to interfere. And I've just started it, so just from the description, it's saying that this is about the impact of colonialism on African children. And I did enjoy his memoir and his last novel, his first novel, the name of which I am forgetting. So I am excited to keep reading this. It is Little Family by Ishmael
1: Beah, and it is out today. For my last book, I have All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson. This is a young adult book, and like I said earlier, it's nonfiction. And I have a number of content warnings for this one, which the author himself gives at the beginning of the book as well. So they are sexual assault, including molestation, homophobia, racism, and anti-blackness. There are also deaths. There are also some slurs used, including the N-word and the F-word, which the author makes it clear he is very deliberate about the ways he employed these words in telling his own stories. The author mentions in the intro that he wants this book to be truthful and that he will be sharing some very heavy things that people don't necessarily talk about, especially with young adults. He went through some very hard things as a child and a young adult. And many young adults are going through hard things right now. And that is Johnson's point in telling these things truthfully. He wishes that when he was a young adult, he had stories to turn to, such as this, so he's hoping that his story can help some young people today. George M. Johnson is black and queer and this memoir manifesto is about his finding himself, finding community, coming out and being seen. I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't myself biased being black and queer. So much of his story resonated with me. His family like mine isn't ne- like not necessarily academics when it comes to queer history, but were still very loving and accepting. I couldn't help but cry every time I read about his close relationship with his grandmother because it's just so full of unconditional, active love. I found it extra hilarious that he didn't learn his first name until he was around six because his family and school called him by his middle name. I found it extra hilarious because I have the same story. My family calls me by my middle name, and I didn't know my first name was Patricia until the first day of first grade when the teacher did roll call. And now I'm curious about like, who else has this kind of quirky story? What I love about this book is that yes, the author tells his story, but remember, it is only partly memoir. It is also a manifesto. He starts right off with telling the story of the day he was born, and then leaps into how we have gender projected on us as infants, and then the other societal projections and expectations, which, for many people, are way off the mark, and how this adds to struggles of queer kids. One of the most brilliant quotes in this book that stuck with me is, "...the spectrum of our traumas can be as broad as our identities." The author shares not only the traumas that can occur as a queer person or a Black person, but at the intersection of being Black and queer. This book is such a wonderful addition to the growing collection of queer Black literature. I really, truly, highly recommend All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson.
0: We did it!
1: We did it!
0: Those are our books. So I sort of mentioned this yesterday, I think, during our work Slack, but brought up the thing about people who didn't know what their first name was. And because I grew up in Maine, where people who grew up in Maine, many of them don't say the letter R, especially older generations, because my name is a a proper noun, but it's also a noun, people would pronounce my name Liberty instead of Liberty, so, like, the first time I went to school, I could not understand what the teacher was saying to me, because my mother and my parents, who, you know, were from Maine and didn't use ours except when they said my name, you know, they said Liberty, so I couldn't understand what the teacher was saying to me, because is like, Liberty, like, it's just, and people still call me that, like, all the time in Maine, that's, that's what they say, and I was like, that's not how you pronounce my name, that's how you pronounce the other parts of Liberty, <laughs> like, you know,
1: like, if you're from Maine, so...
0: Um, it's confusing when you're a child.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my family calls me Susie. But then it's weird because like, then I went by Patricia at school. And then college, I went by Patricia the first two years, but then I went by Susie the next two years. And then later, I ended up working with someone who knew me in college as Susie. So now people at my day job call me Susie. And it's just weird and confusing and now people are like what should i call you i'm just whatever just whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> all right i think we've worked through, through some
0: some therapy today I think so, yeah. told yeah. some told some silly stories learned some important facts about wombats and porcupines and talked about a new books so those were our new books what are you going to read next
1: I desperately want to finish The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall, because that comes out soon.
0: Nice. I actually, just before we started recording this, uh, watched the Beastie Boys documentary that dropped today on Apple, because I love the Beastie Boys. How was it? It's really fun. It's not the way that you would expect a documentary. It's actually the two surviving members on stage in front of a screen with photos taught to like telling stories. It's not oh, like a documentary where you sit down and they're like when they were babies this is what happened. And yeah. but it's like they're they're goofy and they're fun and you know it's heartbreaking because Adam is gone, but Yeah. It was good. So I realized like I got that super duper Beastie Boys book Last year or the year before when it came out, like, with all the photos and stuff. And I only kind of looked through some of it. So I think I'm going to go back and and look through that now, like, knowing most of the stories. Or maybe, like, all of the stories are from that book. I don't know. But it was fun. And I love them. And that's it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Uh, you can drop us a line like Nancy did at all the books at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at the info file. I am friends and comes alive on Instagram. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you weird facts today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more book titles out now in the show notes. At bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading! reading.